Well, good morning. Glad you're here today. Uh, we're continuing in our series this morning on all about love, and we're going to be reading from 1 John chapter 4. Uh, before we get there, let me just remind you the Leadership Summit is less than a, a month away. I'd love to have you join us and sign up for that. All the information is on the back of your notes this morning. If you'd like to uh, talk about that, you can find me or, or some others after the service. We'd, we'd love to talk with you about it. Love to have you join us for that event. John is writing here. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let's pray for a minute. Father God, we thank you for allowing us to gather here today and for filling up the room. Thank you for those who are with us online and as we join our hearts together, we we pray and we honor you and we acknowledge that you are amazing and your love that overflows into our, love, our lives is amazing too. Thank you for your greatest representation of love that came through Jesus, the exact representation of your being. In Jesus, we see your heart. In Jesus, we see your compassion in Jesus, we see your authority and your power and your wisdom. So we come here today and we acknowledge that we are small, you are great. We need your wisdom in life. We need your strength in life. And if we are to live by love, we need an infusion of love that comes from the cross and that comes ultimately from the heavens where you reign. And we ask that you would pour out this love into us, this love of a divine kind, this love from outside of ourselves, so that we can figure out how we navigate the shifting times that we are in today, where so much of our world thinks that you're either irrelevant or not there, or that you don't care, and that you're not authoritative for decision-making in life. Help us figure out how we operate by love and wisdom in the midst of a world that wants to create its own kind of morality in the midst of a world that wants to create its own destiny while we try to serve you. We know that one day your kingdom will come with all power and all authority and we know that one day heaven itself will come to earth and you will reign among your people forever. Lord, it's this time where we find it's challenging to live by your values, to surrender to your truth, to live by your principles in the midst of a world that increasingly says no. We will not have any God tell us what to do. We will not have any Bible instruct us. We will not have any moral principles that are proclaimed to be universal for all times. 
God, this stuff matters that we're studying. So I pray that you allow these words of truth about your love to sink in deeply. This morning we pray for our mission team as they left early this morning for this week. We ask that you will bless every single member of the 18 of them who are on this trip. Give them cohesion and working together. Give them tasks that push them to limits and that force them to depend on you and on each other and bring them back safely. We pray for those who are struggling with one area of health or another this morning, for Jean, for Tom, for Fred, for Carol and Elliot, for Chris, for Mark, and for many others who may not have told me or our staff about where their struggles are right now, but we know that we depend on you for strength, and we ask that even more, that your presence will overwhelm every challenge that we are facing today. Guide us in this time and open our eyes to see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. One of the most frequent questions I am asked as a pastor runs something like this. Where is this God that you believe in if I'm allowed to suffer like this? Does God really care about my life if his plan includes such pain or such loss? Who asks questions like this? Well, at one time or another, I think we all do. Something hits in a way that you didn't expect, and it rattles your foundation. It may not shake you off that foundation, but it rattles the very foundation that you stand on. They come, questions like this come from the person who just experienced a crushing loss of a loved one, or from the person who's gone through a painful breakup or divorce, from the person who's been on the downside of some great unfairness of life, or from the person who gets a diagnosis from the doctor who says, what we can do for you may buy you time, but this will not take it all away. What do you do in that moment, and what is your foundation And do you still believe in a loving God when you are rocked to the core? That's the question that I have for us this morning. These questions arise in moments when you get all the hope kicked out from under you. If you're asking a question like this today, or if you at some point in the past have done so, or if you find yourself in one of those moments when hope continually gets stripped away, then today's message is probably something you need to think deeply about. Ponder it. Go back and reread these scriptures. Let it soak in. Our topic today is love's source. And this is message three of our All About Love series. For the rest of the summer, we're going to look at several ways that the Bible talks about love. And this love is not just an airy-fairy, simple kind of love. It's a deep love that resonates and that resides with us through all the difficulties that we go through. My hope is that those who stay with us for this entire series will come away with a deeper, more developed, more robust understanding of the love of God that we find in Jesus and the love of God that is imparted to those who follow Jesus. So good morning and welcome to North River. It's good to be with you here today and I don't think there's any better place that you could be. Welcome to everybody who is watching with us online. I'm glad that you're a part of our collective praise and learning time today. I'd love to hear from you. 
Send me a note with your thoughts or questions. You can reach me at paul at northriverchurch.org. And today we're going to think deeply about Jesus and about love's source. One of the questions that uh, prompted me to, uh, toward this theme for today was the thought of, is there a higher love? Last week we talked about four kinds of loves and we began to focus in on the fourth of the, the love words that the New Testament uh, authors had to, at their availability when they were writing. And it's this agape love, this higher love. Is there a higher love? And if so, where does it come from? Jump into this with me. We're going to talk about love's source. Here's the first observation. God supplies it. That might seem really obvious, right? You expect that love comes from God. But let me just tell you from the outset, not all agree. Look at the songs of our age. They tell us to look within you and you will find love. Not to look from outside of you. Not to look to the heavens. But it's within you. It's already there. It's in the world. You just have to look a little deeper. So John writes in 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It is essential that we understand which kind of love that John was writing about. Earlier in this series, we've identified the four words that were available for the New Testament writers. And they all talked about love, but they, they had four very separate compartments of love. We use the word love and it means everything. I love the Red Sox. I love you. I love my child. I love my grandmother. It's all the same thing. But Philos was the kind of love that was reserved for brotherly love or friendship love. Storge talked about that fierce parental or family love. Eros was romantic or sexual love. And then there was agape, this love of a divine kind. This is the love we're talking about today. So I want to explain that a little bit more. The, the concept of agape or agape love came from ancient classical re, uh, Greek, but by the time that the New Testament was being written and that Jesus walked on the earth, that word had largely fallen out of use. The gospel and New Testament writers reclaimed this concept and used it to describe the love of God that had come in Christ. This was something new that Jesus was bringing with him, a, a new understanding of God's love. This is the dominant word that Jesus used in the Gospels for love. And it leads to the conclusion that Jesus himself initiated this New Testament focus on this agape love. So in this series, I am largely describing agape love in three ways. First, it is not innate, meaning it's a love that comes from outside of ourselves. You're not simply born with it. Second, it is other-centered. It forces us not to think about ourselves so much, but to figure out how we take this love that is poured into us and give it away to other people. The more that God's love fills you, it will push you outward. And third, it is supplied by God. This is why we are calling this a love of a divine kind. John makes five very important truth claims about agape love in these opening verses of this part of his fourth chapter in 1 John. The first truth claim is that agape love comes from God. He's the source. Second, the ability to give agape love reveals that we are born of God. So the very fact that you are able to give that away is a sign to you that his spirit is operating in you and that you belong to him. If you never love somebody else or you find it decreasing, you ought to wonder whether 
you have really experienced the, sa- the saving work of Christ in your life. Because he gives you this to give away. Third statement that John makes is that loving with this agape love, th- th- this kind of love, reveals that we know God. So again, it is telling others around us something about who we are. The fourth statement that John tells us is that the absence of agape love means that we don't know God. And then the last one is that God himself is love. It flows from his nature. This kind of love is in God's DNA. These are five radical, powerful statements that John delivers back to back here in these opening verses. These statements clearly identify God as the source of this love from outside of ourselves. It is the highest kind of love that comes directly from God, and God himself embodies it and and exemplifies himself in this kind of love. So much that his spirit led the gospel writers, the New Testament writers, to be able to say, God is love. You got that? This is deep stuff that John is writing. Only two verses into this paragraph of Scripture. Here's the second discovery. This love is tied to God's presence. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Notice the direct connection between God's love and sending Jesus. We see this two times, once in verse 9, once in verse 10. In verse 9, it says, this is how God showed his love, and then he sent his one and only son. In verse 10, it says, this is love. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The outcome of God's love in these two verses is the presence of the Son of God with us. So we see that God blesses the people he loves with his presence. In the gospel era, that presence is first of all expressed and seen in the person of Jesus, God's one-of-a-kind, unique son. That raises a question. In the time that the New Testament was written, was this something new? Or were Jesus and the gospel writers expressing something that had been true about God all through the ages that they were only seeing more clearly now that Jesus had come in person? I'd like you to look at the Old Testament record with me a little bit. Isaiah chapter 63, if you have a Bible, turn to the Old Testament. Isaiah 63 verses 7 through 9, I'll read it for you. Here Isaiah speaks of God and he says, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us, yes, the many good things he had done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me, and so he became their savior. This is the key verse, verse 9. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now, think back a little bit. 
I, we were starting in 1 John, but I threw Isaiah at you. Isaiah 63 comes in a section of this marvelous Old Testament book that points to and foretells the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. In verses 7 through 9 in chapter 63, Isaiah looks back on the kindness and mercy of God in the past, and we see three important features of God's love that he lists here in verse 9. One, when his people are in distress, he shares their distress. Think about that for a minute. When you are in your greatest moments of distress, you are not alone, like one of the songs we sang this morning. He is with you and he identifies with you and he surrounds you in those moments of distress. Here's the second important feature. He does this through a messenger of his presence. The word angel, Old Testament and New Testament, can mean messenger. So in the Old Testament era, there was an angel of his presence. Third, he didn't remove the distress, but he redeemed his people, lifted them up, and carried them in the midst of his distress. Do you see that pattern? He doesn't necessarily always take away our distress, but he promises to redeem it, and to lift you up and to carry you in those moments of distress so that you know his presence in a way that you never have before. This is one of the profound things that God does in the most challenging moments of our lives. And Isaiah is telling us this 600 years before the time of Christ. That means that this wasn't something that was new at the dawning of Christ in the world, it's something that has been true of God all the way along. We see a similar pattern when God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read Exodus chapters 3, verses 7 and 8 and 10. The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Verse 10 says, So now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. What do we see in those verses? First, that God has seen, he has heard, and that he is concerned about the plight of his people. Second, so he has come down to take a closer look. And third, he is sending somebody to be a redeemer. In this case, that is Moses. This is the pattern. This is how God works. He sees, he hears, he is concerned. Then he comes down into the misery to get a closer look. And he sends a redeemer, someone who will redeem our suffering. And he carries us through that. God's love is tied to his presence. And his presence is always revealed in a redeemer. And our redeemer, the greatest redeemer, the one-of-a-kind redeemer, is Jesus. Third, you didn't think we were going to talk about love this way today, did you? This is deep, but this is real. This is where we live. God's love is tied to suffering. No, you didn't mishear me. God's love is tied to suffering. Look at what verse 10 says again. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 10 shows us that in love, God moves from sending to suffering. He sends somebody to convey his presence first, but then God enters into the suffering himself. He shares in our suffering by suffering on our behalf. This is love, not that we love God. 
In other words, we didn't love God first, but God loved us where we are, despite all that we know about ourselves, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loves us, and he sacrifices for us. Some people get stuck here, and they think, well, wait a minute. You're talking about God the Father, and God sent Jesus. Jesus is the one who suffered. How did God suffer? Let me ask you, if you're a parent, did they tell you when your child woke up for that first time in the hospital room, and it was cute, and you're so full of joy, that you would suffer because you have children? Did anybody tell you that? No, we discovered that along the way. When they hurt, you hurt. If they go through, go through some traumatic injury, you go through that traumatic injury. Lord forbid, but if they die before you do, you suffer in a way that you never thought imaginable. God suffered when Jesus went to the cross. Not hard to make that case. Melvin Newland, one of my favorite preachers, says, love and suffering go hand in hand. We often say, God must not love me. If he did, he wouldn't let me suffer this way. But when we look at the cross, we see that love and suffering go together. And that Jesus understood this. Remember, he heard the cursing from the other thief on the cross. And he still said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, the prolific author from the previous century, why do the righteous, meaning Christians, why, why do the righteous suffer? Here's Lewis's answer. Why not? They're the ones who can take it. What he meant was, is that life is full of suffering because we live in a broken world. But Christians have the advantage of God's loving presence. Shouldn't we be able to take suffering better than everyone else? Lewis is, is reasoning with us. It's okay to pray and ask God to take away whatever you're suffering from. But he may not because he has a higher purpose. Whoa, you might say, when Paul, we're talking about love here today. How did you get all the way into this suffering? Well, because love is tied to suffering and God's presence is tied to suffering. God does not promise to take all of our suffering away in this world. Why? He's playing the long game. He's focused on long-term justice when the kingdom of heaven comes to this earth and God reigns fully and all of his justice comes raining down. We often play the short game. God, why, why am I suffering this way? Why am I going through what I'm going through? And God cares about us and he carries us through those times but what he's committed to is the ultimate long-term kind of justice. And we get caught when we focus only on the here and now. It's understandable. Our pain forces that. But where he wants us to look at is the God who reigns long term and who points us to a better kingdom and lets us know that the lessons we're learning today are preparing us for that kingdom that we long for that lasts forever. Max Anders, who's been a pastor and a theologian and a, and a writer, he calls this kind of focus 
Moving from checkers to chess. Do you get that? Moving from checkers to chess. And when God allows our suffering to linger and to stay in this world and in your life, part of that is a reminder that there is another kingdom that is coming and that he's playing the long game. He's playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers saying, king me, king me. He's not into kinging us. He's into bringing his eternal reign into the world in a way that everybody sees and nobody can miss. So again, John writes, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus embraces this perspective when he says, in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He wasn't saying, I'm not going to suffer, I'm not going to die. He's saying, I'm focused on the long game. And I'm betting the farm that my father, our God, has control of the long game. God identified with the sufferings of his people in the past. He saw and heard and was concerned. He came down and he sent a messenger, a redeemer. He responded to their misery with his presence. Then at the right time, he sent not just a messenger, but his very own son. Do you see the connection between this kind of pattern and the parables? This is the way Jesus often told the parables. He told about a vineyard owner who sent several different messengers and they were all mistreated by the people who'd taken possession of the vineyard. Finally, he sends his son thinking, surely they'll respect my son and then they kill him too. This is the pattern. This is what Jesus was talking about all during his days. God did not take away the suffering, the sadness, or the brokenness of our world. It is broken. He didn't take away death or disease or dysfunction, but he gave us his presence, his full presence, his exact representation in Jesus, which is the best that he can give us in the midst of this broken world. And in those moments when we draw near to Jesus, he lifts us and he carries us. And we know him when he carries us. Here's the big idea for this morning. The source of higher love is the God whose son triumphs over sin and whose presence enables us to live and love as citizens of a better kingdom. If anybody is ever tempted to think that Christianity is just about helping us live in this world, you have missed the point. We are designed and we are headed for a better kingdom. And there's so much to look forward to that pulls us through all of these times because we see just a glimpse in this life of how good it's going to be. And that's what he wants us to focus on. He's playing the long game. This is the other-centered love of God. So John writes in verses 11 and 12, Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If the Bible simply told us to love one another, two things would result. Most people in our world would applaud and so that's the message we want to hear from the church. It's really the only message we want to hear from the church. Our culture and our neighboring community expects to see love from Christians. 
And so they should. Second, our faith, though, would just be another religion filled with moralisms. Do better, work harder, be better, love more. This is all the stuff of man-made religion. I'm not saying that those aren't valuable messages. But the more it becomes moralistic when it's all about, when church is all about, when preaching is all about, when our view of the scriptures is all about just telling you to be better people. Jesus Christ did not come into the world and die on a cross so that we would be better people. That we were okay the way we were. He came into this world because we radically needed a savior and we were lost and we were stuck in our own sins and we couldn't find a way out and we couldn't perfect ourselves. And he did what he had to do because we couldn't do it for ourselves. To radically transform and to radically change us. It's not just about doing better. He didn't come, suffer, die, and rise again to make us into religious moralists. Again, he didn't just come saying, do better, be better, love better, try harder. He came to offer us undeserved, unmerited grace. This was an other-centered act of grace and mercy from God. And he calls us to a higher love that is rooted in receiving and then giving that same kind of grace, that same kind of love. Our culture longs for this. We're tired of one group's moralism kind of triumphing over another group's view of moralism and how the different tribal groups all fight this out. In 1986, pop artist Steve Winwood wrote a pop song called Higher Love. Anybody remember that song? Some of you are too young, I'm sorry. But... Uh, <laughs> But it went to number one on the Billboard charts in a week, and it won two Grammys and Record of the Year. And then in 1990, Whitney Houston covered this same song, Higher Love, and it gained a whole new life and a whole new audience. At the time, some people actually thought it was a gospel song. Why did the words of a pop song resonate so strongly? I think it's because this higher love is something that we all long for, we all hope for. Listen to the lyrics of this song. Think about it, there must be a higher love. Down in the heart or hidden in the stars above. Without it, life is wasted time. Look inside your heart, I'll look inside mine. And then the pre-chorus says, things look so bad everywhere. In this whole world, what is fair? We walk blind and we try to see, falling behind in what could be. And then the chorus comes in. Bring me a higher love. Bring me a higher love, oh, bring me a higher love. Where's that higher love I keep thinking of? Isn't that amazing? We don't need to hunt or search or hope for a higher love. God has heard our cries. He sent Jesus to offer us a love-soaked grace that culminates in paying our debt to sin and offering us a love of a divine kind so that we get a foretaste of what heaven will be like as God loves us and we love each other and we love those outside of us in sacrificial ways. He doesn't want to just save you from your sins. He cares about you. He loves you. He wants to know you and you to know him. And when you place your faith and trust in him, he pours his love out into your life. A kind of love that can transform even the darkest time that we go through. 
because we find in those moments that we know him in a, in a way like no other time because he carries us when we cannot carry ourselves. His presence changes everything. His presence allowed Joseph to see that God allowed his suffering in Egypt so that others would benefit. And so when we get to the end of the Joseph story, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says that great line, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And Joseph is able to say, I suffered all those years in prison even though I was unfairly accused because God was setting me up to be in a place where I could pour out the love that he gave me in the prison to my family members who treated me so badly when they come down starving and looking for food. His presence means that you're not alone. His presence in our suffering means that God has suffered too along with us and he stands beside you in your suffering. His presence in our suffering now points us to a better world, to a better kingdom yet to come where there are no more tears and no more suffering. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a hospital to see somebody and that person says, I've been praying like I've never prayed before while I'm in here. I have to tell you, I know that God is with me. I'd hate to have to go through this to really find out how much God loves me. But that's what he does. Because love is tied to his presence. And love is tied to suffering in this world because our God chooses to suffer with us. The proof of that is the cross. The source of higher love isn't from within us. It's not just out in the stars somewhere. It's not in this long lost love of your life where you could only find that person you truly know love. The source of this higher love is the God whose son triumphs over sin and whose presence enables us to live now, today, here as citizens of a better kingdom. Do you want that love? That's why we embrace Jesus. Do you want that love? That's why we sing about surrendering to Jesus. Do you want that love? It only comes from God through Jesus to us. And he gives you a love that you may not even realize today that you have the capacity to be filled with. And also the capacity to then give away as he fills you and refills you. Never be afraid of giving away the love that he gives you because he will only refill it as we give away the love he's given us at first. Would you like to receive that kind of relationship with God through Jesus that fills you with love? I'm going to ask everybody to pray a prayer with me that we're going to put up on the screen behind me or it's in in your notes if you have those. But would you read this with me? What it does is it gives somebody the safety to say, if I'm doing this for the first time, I did it in the company of those who already believe the same thing. Here we go. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Help me to live and love like a member of your kingdom now. Amen. God, I pray 
that you will draw near and comfort and carry all those who are suffering with one thing or another, whether it's a physical illness or a broken heart or a loss in their lives, that you will allow us to draw near to you. And that as we surrender to you as the Lord of our lives, the Savior from our sins, that you will fill us with your love on a daily basis. This love of a divine kind, this love from on high that doesn't come from within us, it doesn't come from our culture, it doesn't come from our government, it doesn't come from our friends alone. It comes directly from you, from your heart to ours. And fill us with such a capacity to love others that the people in our culture who are continuing to write off the God of the Bible, the God of moral truth, ultimate moral truth, will be struck by the way that we love in the midst of suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.